good morning, church. It is good to be back with you. Uh, my wife and I just returned yesterday from a trip to Colorado. We married our youngest daughter off. Everything was wonderful and it was beautiful. And uh, thank you for that time. I appreciate you uh, allowing us to take a couple of weeks and go and do some rest and celebrate family and uh, and engage, bear witness to uh, really a big moment in our lives. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the elders giving me that time off and, and you giving me that time off and praying for us during that time. Uh, we just returned yesterday and one of the other gifts that I was given is I am here today to worship with my wife uh, and uh, I didn't have to work on, on putting together a sermon for this Sunday and so what I got to do was to invite somebody to come and speak with us. And so Jimmy Sportsman is here to preach today. Jimmy, would you come join me up on stage? I want to pray over you before we start. Um, but I want to let you know, if you're new here, uh, Jimmy was the preaching minister here for 10, 8, 9, 10 years? 8. Come on up here. Come on up here. And uh, 8 years. So um, I, I want to tell you, I don't know if you know this, but about over a decade ago, uh, I was at Westover Church in Austin where I worked, and we had a marriage seminar. And Jimmy and Gail Sportsman came and spoke at the marriage seminar there at our church. And it was really moving and it was very powerful for me and my wife, Melissa, and for many of us at the church. And uh, little did I know uh, many years later that I would be making a phone call to you to say, hey, this church in Kerrville is interested in talking to me and I'm interested in talking to them. And we got to have a, what, was, uh, what has become a very important conversation in my life. Uh, and for me to be able to to discern the will of God in coming here and being your preaching minister. And so uh, it was a great conversation to hear Jimmy talk about how well he was loved here by this church and how much he loved you. And, uh, and that was a powerful thing in our decision. And so I thank you for that. And I thank you for your time here. And I thank you for uh, the path that you've set here for this church. And it means a lot to me. And I am uh, benefiting greatly by the work that you've done here in this place. So if I can, I want to pray over you before we start, and then I'm going to turn it over to you and let you bring the word, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for Jimmy and for a man who has dedicated his life uh, to the word of God, to pointing people towards the cross and the empty tomb. And Lord, I thank you for the work that he's done here at this place in this church, that this was family to him, that he loved this place well, that they loved him well. Uh, I thank you for the, the powerful words of truth that were brought here for many years. And Lord, uh, the things that I know happened, even though I wasn't here, uh, for those of us that, that decide to serve the church, I know that there were tears that were shed for those that he loved here when they were going through difficult times. I know that there were words of comfort that were said in uh, memorial services and funerals for those that were part of this church family. I know that there were late nights uh, suffering and praying over lessons to make sure that they were uh, what you wanted and that uh, there were there were nights of of pleading for the holy spirit to come and translate and do what the holy spirit does to make sure that the words that he said would be something that were honoring to you in every way but we also know that there were words of comfort there were conversations there were prayers uh, with others. There was encouragement to others. There was baptisms as he uh, witnessed and was part of bringing people into the kingdom of God. And Lord, I thank you for the way that you used him here in this place. I thank you for his new bride, Susan, and that she's here today. I thank you for the way that you have uh, walked with him through loss and through rejoicing. And Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you love us, and we thank you for this church family that we both hold very dear. And Lord, we thank you most of all for the blood of Christ, which uh, makes us brothers. 
And so, Lord, bless this time this morning. Give him the gift of uh, preaching that you have always done, and let this be a blessing to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good morning, church. Man, it's been a while since I've said that. It's good to be home. Uh, And what a treasure. Amen? What a treasure Scott and his family have been. Now, if you're applauding for that, I get all the credit. If you really don't like Scott, blame Don Barnett, okay? It's all his fault. (laughs) It really is a double honor to be back home and then also to be invited by the elders uh, and Scott to stand again here in this place and to uh, share God's word with you. It's just been a treasure of memories. A lot of emotions are flowing through me right now, and so I just uh, ask for you to bear with me if... uh, if things get a little teary-eyed, because there are a few things that are definitely going to be tear triggers uh, for me in this message. But just being here is just that, just singing with you uh, this morning and just remembering a flood of memories that have come through, seeing these kids, oh my goodness, that were, and now are this, you know, and some of you who were like this and not like this. so it's been, a, it's been a joy just to hug some of your necks. And if I don't get around to hugging all of you, just, there it is. Uh, just consider yourself hugged, all right. Turn to John chapter 17, whether you've got electronic Bibles or whether you've got a paper Bible. I, I want to take the next in this series of John that you've been in spirit and truth. Um, when Scott called me, he gave me this chapter, John chapter 17. And before um, we dive in, I need some prayer cover for myself and, uh, and for our ears and our hearts this morning, so let's bow. Lord, uh, you know the ragamuffin that's uh, standing here today. And you know uh, that the message that I've brought is really a sack lunch. Um, but you do amazing things with sack lunches, we hear. Amen. Uh, you take them and you break them and you turn them into feasts for thousands. And so that's what we entrust today, is that you'll do the same thing with uh, with a message and touch hearts and move hearts and um, transform lives. Nobody can do that through a speech, uh, but you can do that through your word. And so we rely upon that. We, we lean into that, and we, uh, our hope is in that finally one day that word will split the clouds and truly take us into what we read a few moments ago about the, um, the dawning of a new time in which we will be in your presence forever. Maranatha. Lord, come. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said. Amen. I didn't know him, but I think I would have liked Carl McCoon. That's whose picture's up on the screen there, and I say that for three reasons, because number one, uh, we're Texans. Uh, Number two, uh, we both love the outdoors, and then number three, we both love true adventures uh, in the outdoors. Uh, most of my adventures, however, have taken place in the mountains of Rudos in New Mexico. Carl's began in the 1970s when he moved to the wilderness state of Alaska. John, say amen. Yeah. There he took a job with the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline, and his desire was to make some fast money and then live out a dream of his that is still a little bit bewildering to those who live in our 49th state. At the age of 35, he made plans to embark on a five-month journey, solo, mind you, into that wilderness of Alaska. He hired a bush pilot to fly him into a remote part of the world, 
near the Colleen River, some 70 miles northeast of Fort Yukon, if you know Alaska at all. He took with him two rifles, one shotgun, 1,400 pounds of supplies, and 500, you heard me, 500 rolls of film. He planned to spend five months in isolation photographing that amazing wilderness. Well, friends describe how seriously he took this quest saying his preparation was absolutely meticulous. He mapped out almost every day of his intended five-month adventure. He devoted an entire year to making his plans and gathering the needed supplies. He solicited advice from every wilderness expert he could get a phone call to or a letter to. He checked and rechecked detail after detail. And in March of 1981, he soared over the Brooks Range into the Alaskan wilderness in search of his dream. He set up his tent, made some dinner, and began this season of absolute isolation, blissfully unaware, however, of one overlooked detail that would eventually cost him his life. See, it wasn't until August, with about a week left of his intended stay, that he realized he had failed to make preparation for someone to return and pick him up. True story. Now, we know it wasn't until August because of a 100-page loose-leaf diary that was found by an Alaskan state trooper next to his body in February. In it, he wrote, in what I think is the understatement the size of Mount McKinley, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. By late August, the days began to shorten and the air began to absolutely chill him to the bone. Bakun began to search for food on the ground. He began to search in the skies for hope. Hiking was absolutely impossible. And so staying put was the only reasonable choice for him to survive. But it was fully dependent upon someone noticing he was absent. And then number two, coming to look for him. By the end of September, snow was absolutely piling up around his tent. The lake was frozen. His supplies were all but gone. October brought longer shadows, deeper hunger, and Kuhn's body began to metabolize, making it almost impossible to stay warm. Temperatures hovered continuously in the zero range. Frostbite began to set in on his fingers, and by late November, he was out of food, out of strength, and out of hope. And one of his final diary entries reads just this way. This is a slow and agonizing death. Hmm. Now, I don't know what your initial response to hearing that is, but mine was this. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Really? I think I should have used more foresight about arranging for my departure. I have never heard, literally, ever of a more colossal oversight in my entire life? How can a person plan the details of every day except his final day? It sounds unthinkable, and yet the longer that I live, I see the consequences of a similar fate in the lives of people, hear me clearly, every single day. We plan for everything. Career, vacations, having kids, college for the kids, retirement. We plan for everything, but the majority don't have an exit strategy. They don't. And certainly don't reflect on it near enough. What Mr. McCoon faced in the wilderness is what I think all of us will face all over the world sooner. No, 
I know all of us will face sooner or later. And that is this adventure of life is going to come to an end and we will exit. The question that remains is, is do we have a strategy for that exit? And I just want to say right up front, this clear, if you don't, it has been my prayer leading up to this, you will, my friend, and that Jesus Christ will be the center of all of that. In John chapter 17, this chapter Scott has given me, asked me to teach on today, Jesus reveals his exit strategy. And I believe with any real hope of success for any of your exit strategies has to hinge on something similar. So let's dive in and look at this. It starts and is based in this one truth found in this text. This is the real and eternal life. That they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now just so that you make sure you leave here with at least that in your minds, read that with me. Here we go. This is the real and eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, history is going to show that when Jesus spoke this prayer, and it is a prayer, all of John 17, I don't know whether he's bowing, I don't know whether he's laying face down on the ground, I don't know whether he's got his hands raised as he's standing up, but he's praying. And he's praying less than 24 hours before he's going to experience one of the most excruciating deaths any human being could experience in this world, death on a cross. And to everyone, I promise you, looking on, Roman soldiers, Jewish religious leaders, Jesus' family, his best friend, and a curious mob, his death on this cross is going to look like, hear me clearly, failure on a stick. Everyone knew that Rome used this particular hill and this method of crucifixion as an execution billboard style so that anyone passing in and out of the cities of Jerusalem would know if you defy Rome or one of its associates, this is what you can expect. Nobody plans to be crucified. If they're crucified, their lives are taken from them, right? Right? Well, that answer would be a resounding yes as long as it didn't apply to Jesus because his was planned. We know that's true because one of his disciples, Matthew, records these words as they were headed towards Jerusalem to that crucifixion. Matthew says, on the way he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, friend, that is either the talk of someone senile or very special. That is either a man who is sick in the head or a man who is truly the savior of the world. And hundreds of us gathered here in this room believe those are the words of the Savior of the world. Amen? Amen. We believe that. Who predicts his death and resurrection and pulls it off and hundreds of people witness him alive doing exactly what he promised he would do? I want to remind you who. You know who. Jesus Christ. The one who made this world. The one who brought you into this world. And the one who can get you safely out of it. Now, why would he do that? 
Here's what I want to leave with you this morning. Because God would rather die for you than live without you. That's why. No wonder he could pray minutes before his arrest the following words that I'm about to read. And as you hear them, I want to ask you, do you hear panic in these words or peace? Here they are. Father, it's time. Display the bright splendor of your son so the son in turn may show your bright splendor. You put him in charge of everything human so he might give real and eternal life to all in his care. And this is real and eternal life that they know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your very own splendor, the very splendor I had in the presence, your presence, before there was a world. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the exact confidence I want to leave this world with. I don't hear panic. I hear peace and assurance to the extent that I would say anticipation of what's about to happen. Now, this morning, I'm going to point you toward four things that I think are a part or at least outlined in this chapter 17 of Jesus' exit strategy. And the first one begins with this. Do anticipate. There's going to be two do's and two don'ts. Here's the first of the do's. Do anticipate that the one who brought you into this world is capable of bringing you out. You're here. <laughs> is that the obvious? You're here. How'd you get here? Well, besides the biological part of it, how did you, the part of it that's you, exclusively, specifically you, how did you get here? You're not quite sure. God doesn't explain fully. But he does explain fully how you get out of here. Amen? And this is part of it, that you can anticipate with all of your heart that he can get you out. Now, I don't know the emotions of Jesus and what they were Moments before he left heaven's glory and left the presence of the Father and came here, Paul says, emptying himself, mind-boggling, emptying himself of his godness, not the godlikeness, not his essence, but his powers and his prestige and all the stuff that made him whoa in heaven. He empties himself of that and he comes to this place and takes on the form of a man because he's here to save you, my friend. And he needed to go through this world as a man, as a human being, and go through it sinless so that he could be the sin sacrifice for you to get you out of here safely. I don't know what the emotions were like before he left, but I know what his emotions were like that recorded right here before he goes back. I can't wait, God. Coming home. Coming home. I've done everything you've asked for me to do. Take me back. Take me back. Where's he going? Paul tries to say this about it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Anybody in here have an imagination? Anybody here still awake? Scott, do they fall asleep this quickly with you? Okay, okay, I feel better. You can think... You can imagine, we've talked about what heaven might be like, fill in the blank with it, beyond what you can think, beyond what you've heard, beyond anything that anyone's ever said, heaven's just getting started. He's ready to go home. Who wouldn't be after what he's been through and what he's about to go through? 
Can a person really have that kind of anticipation? Oh, yeah. Because I witnessed it personally. No one, no one in my life has ever talked about heaven more so than my wife of 40 years, Gail. No one. I don't think it's a coincidence the timing of the invitation for me to come back and speak for the very first time in a church that I had the privilege and the pleasure of speaking to for eight years. Why, why now? Why today? When a year ago today, I was in the very throes of watching my wife die. For those of you who don't know me and don't know our story, on May 23rd, a year ago, my wife was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four. There were lesions on her liver and her small intestine. And by August 27th, 96 days later, her life as we know it in this world came to an end. But hear me clearly, her life is not without end. It is without end. Jesus enabled her to have this kind of anticipation, and I saw it on her every single day. If you follow the Cary Bridge at all, of the walk that we made through that 96-day diagnosis to death, you had to have heard the hope in our hearts that God, the God of the impossible, could possibly rescue her and make her absolutely well. But even more importantly, we also never let go of the very real possibility that God would heal her completely and eternally by taking her out of this world. <laughs> by July 16th, a year ago, we were pretty convinced that unless God did a last bottom of the ninth inning miracle, she was going home. We had gone down to Mexico, as many of you remember, and she had been through the treatments for 28 days, and we came back, and her liver was functioning better than ever. Um, her pancreas was functioning better than ever. We were ready to start taking the enzymes necessary to actually attack the cancer. We got her body in Mexico ready to be able to do this, but then her body couldn't handle the enzymes. She was supposed to be taking 15 in a day. She couldn't take two. By the first week being back home and by trying to implement that regimen, we knew. She couldn't eat. The nausea was never ending. It was a body that couldn't move. We had moved her out into the sunroom uh, in our place in Lubbock. She rarely left the bed. And so we pray this, God, if you're not going to take her, please take her quickly. But she always added, but let me make it to my anniversary, August 21st. <laughs> and he did. And then he gracefully took her home. Paul says, our outward nature is wasting away, but our inner nature is being renewed every single day. And I was eyewitness to it. I witnessed to it. I've not been the only one in this room who's seen that. But this was my life, my gale that it was taking place with. My, my faith that was being stretched and grown. She believed the words 
that you have studied already in John 5 and verse 24. Truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but already is crossed over from death to life. Do you believe that, church? Jesus said it. The death beater, the one who is the, the way, the truth, and the life said that. If you'll put your trust in me already in this world, you cross over from death to life. And it's just a speed bump to step into all that. In the last days of her life, I asked her, what do you want me to say at your celebration of life? And this is her exact response. She says, please, tell everyone I've not had anything taken from me. I'm about to receive everything that I've ever hoped for. My brother died of this same cancer at 42. I've lived to 62. Lived to see my girls have children of their own. Lived to hold those children in my arms. I am done with this place and ready to go home. Those are her words. Who says things like that? I'll tell you who, someone with a rock-solid exit strategy for this world. And she had one. Jesus dying publicly on the cross, my wife dying of pancreatic cancer, could be viewed by everyone around that as defeat. Miserable defeat. But not by either one of them. They were entrusting themselves to the God who made them. They were yielding to His plan, not their own, because the one who brought them into this temporary world was welcoming them into His forever world. Yay, God. Yea, God. Brother, in John 17, when Jesus first revealed this exit strategy, when he prayed these words, he knew his Father's power. He knew his Father cared. He knew he could be trusted. And so you can't miss, first of all, the anticipation of a reunion like no other. And so that's where we start with this exit strategy. Do anticipate the same for you. Here's the second do. Do make known to those you've been given the God who loves you and who saved you. It's part of how he could leave this world with a smile on his face. Here's the words that he said in John 17. I spelled out your character in detail, Lord, to the men and women you gave me. They were yours in the first place, and then you gave them to me. So I'm praying not only for them, but also for all those who are going to believe in me because of them and their witness about me. Now, brother, I know you've made known to those God's given you your golf scores. I know you've made known your thoughts on global warming. I know you've made known to your family the importance of a good education and saving money for a rainy day. I know you've made known to those that God's placed in your life the importance of a good work ethic and having an emergency fund. But I need to ask you, have you made a conscious effort to testify of the goodness of God in your life? Have you made an effort to make known to them how he's rescued you, redeemed you, provided for you, and made known to them that he is the only exit strategy out of this world? Have you finished that work with those that he's given you? Because I'm telling you, frighteningly, as a preacher retired, I'm hearing less and less do that with just their family, let alone their next-door neighbor. And I am, I'm considering those that God's given you, not just those folks that you've birthed into this world or adopted into this world, but those who you play pickleball with and those who you go to an office with. Those are all people God's given you. Jesus could leave this world with no regrets, a smile on his face, headed home, 
Because he knew he'd done everything within him to make known to those God had given him who his father was and, and what he's all about. You can do that. You really can. God doesn't call us, many of us anyways, to go to China to tell them over there. He does call some. He's called you to share Jesus with those around you. How are you doing? He didn't get to everybody. That's why he poured his life into his disciples so he would begin this domino effect of people who could then take this I am the way, the truth, and the life into all the world through them. You can do that with your small little army he's entrusted with you. If you want to leave this world with no regrets, if you want to leave this world with anticipation of what's to come, you do that, all right? Now, I want to warn you, when you do, this is the third part of the strategy. You've got to buckle your seatbelt here. Do not expect everybody to applaud your exit strategy. They didn't Jesus. Here's what he says. The godless world hated them because of it. They didn't join the world's ways, just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from this evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I'm defined by the world. Jesus said with his words and with his life, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Not everybody's going to be thrilled to hear that. Not even your own family. And they said to him in his lifetime to, to literally love walking in a human body. Graciousness walking in a human body. Positiveness walking in a human body. Shut up. And if you won't shut up, we will shut you up. And they tried to. And as you're seeing, it's growing in this country. They're going to try to shut you up as well. Just be ready. Paul says it has to happen. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ is going to be persecuted. It's going to happen. Not everyone's going to be thrilled about you and your exit strategy you're trying to share with them, which leads me to point number four, and we're almost done. I don't encourage you to try to use this exit strategy alone. Don't do this alone. Real life is really hard, amen? Real life <laughs> is really hard. Don't try to pull it off by yourself. Don't think you're alone, friend, because you're not. Don't, don't, don't think you have to, to, to muster all this energy up on your own. You don't. Don't think that you have to face what you're about to face alone. You don't. Life is really hard. It's real and it's really hard. And so that's why this group at KCC, we're locking arms. We're locking arms to face it head on together. Together. <laughs> I love the little song that the kids sing. I'm in the Lord's army. Let's finish it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we are in the Lord's army. And so I want to end with this. Every part of the armed forces in our country has an elite group of folks who are called special forces. The Navy has the SEALs. And part of the SEALs training is in the last seven days, they keep them up, all the potential candidates, awake for 24 hours for seven days straight. 
Some of you get bothered when you don't get your nap, okay? <laughs> they keep them up 24 hours a day, seven days, and they conclude by hauling them off to an area in San Diego known as Mud Flats. And what you're looking at here is how they finish that last 24 hours. They bury these candidates up to their heads, up to their faces, as you can see, in mud and water. And for 24 hours, they allow them to be exposed to the elements in California. Now, some of you who've never been to California think that that's just all wonderful and sunny. It can be incredibly cool and cold, even in the summer there in California on the Pacific Coast. So even if they're training in July, sometimes the temperatures drop down to the 50s and the 60s. So imagine being buried up to your face in all of that mud for 24 hours. William McCavin describes his adventure this way. He says, as the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class was ordered into the mud. And the mud consumed each man until there was nothing visible but their heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flats, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours until the sun would come up, eight hours of bone-chilling cold. I didn't know if I was going to make it. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear. I'm telling you anything else. And then one voice began to echo through the night, one voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then the others could as well. In response, the instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we didn't stop singing. But we kept on singing, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. Oh, sister, you're not alone. <laughs> you're just not. Satan would love to have you feel like you are. He would love to have you think that you are and feel that what you believe and who you're trying to be has to be done on your own. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We're locking arms here. We're locking arms here. We're not letting go. And we're singing. <laughs> we're singing. And it may sound strange to you, but there's something that happens when we sing. And we honor this God of ours who not only brought us into the world and is teaching us how to live in the world, oh, have mercy, but is taking us out of here. And he's doing it well. And if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, this is the time, this is the place that we want to give you a chance to do that. Because that's where this exit strategy is founded in. That's where it hinges on. It's saying, yes, Jesus, I trust that the sin debt you paid for me on that cross was for my sin debt. And that my only hope is you. My only hope. So would you please not just save me, but would you fill me? Would you lead me? Would you take me home when it comes my time? All of that can begin today if you've never started. And if you know you started down that path, and you've taken on his name, but you haven't worn it very well, and you found your place wonder, in a place, you know, you're talking about exit strategy today. I just pray it doesn't come today, Jim. I pray I don't die today because I don't know where I'd be. Hear me clearly one more time. If you've trusted in Christ and what he did at the cross, that's handled. 
It's handled. You're his. God's placed you in the hand of his son. Nothing can take you out of it, not even one of your sin. Now, you can walk out if you don't want to be there anymore. He's not going to hold you back. No one's going to be in his heaven that doesn't want to be there. But if you want to be, and you haven't taken the first steps to say yes to Jesus Christ, we're going to sing this song. And oh my goodness, what a song. And the elders are going to be up here, and I'm going to be up here. And if you want to get started on that journey, we're, we're ready to help you. But there is a sun that has risen. And there is a sun that's coming that is going to be the sun in our world again. New heaven, new earth. There is an exit strategy that gets you there. Come get in it. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we love you. And as we stand and sing as a church this song that we call an invitation song. Already we know your spirit's at work in some hearts this morning. And if you're, if you're stirring some stuff that needs some prayer, then we just pray that you will nudge brothers, sisters, friends, people that walked in here today not knowing even why they're here. Pull them close, Father. Help us be able to step into their lives and help them take their next steps in Jesus, whatever that looks like. If it's a first step to say that, that you're my Savior now, help them take that step. If it's, if it's a, another step down the road for some, where they, have, they just say, I'm sorry. I've not lived under this name well, and I'm asking for your forgiveness and renewal. Father, please lead them there. And Father, for some who walked in here today and just were a little discouraged, I pray with all my heart this message just fills them up, renews their strength to soar on wings like eagle. And we're asking you, take us to that place where we soar forever and ever, soon. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. For we ask us in Jesus' name, and everyone said, let's stand and sing, church.